Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Happiness and Humans. My name is Matt Phelan, I am co-founder of the Happiness Index and I am here today with the amazing Amanda. How are you Amanda? Very well thank you, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Very excited to, got lots to discuss with you today. Um, but before, before we get into that Amanda, if you could introduce yourself to our listeners that would be awesome. Yeah of course. So hi Matt and hello to all of your listeners. My name's Amanda Henwood and I'm just finishing a PhD in psychological and behavioural science at the London School of Economics. Um, my work there is centred around how to measure and influence happiness. Brilliant. So definitely the right person to be speaking to today then. <laughs> so Amanda, I don't know if it's possible for you to answer the next question just as Amanda without all your work like feeding into the answer, but who knows, we'll give it a go. But question number one is what makes you happy? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, good question. What makes me happy? I think I would say the two main things that make me happy are, I suppose, spending time with the people that are close to me um, and music. So music is, I guess, in my downtime, that's the thing I kind of do is just listen to music, listen to new tracks. Um, I kind of have quite an eclectic music taste, so <laughs> can go in any direction. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my two main kind of, I suppose, loves in life. And if I can combine those two things together, then there, there's my peak happiness opportunity. Um, so yeah, if I can get some sort of live music event with the people close to me, then that's amazing. That sounds uh, brilliant. Yeah, I think those are the two most happiness making things in my life. Cool. I think there's a lot of people listening that will, that will yeah, that will definitely resonate with that. Um, you know you said the department of psychological and behavioral science yeah what does that actually mean so it is essentially a department that well it focuses on both psychology and behavioral science and there's obviously quite a lot of crossover between these two disciplines um so it started off actually as a social policy department and then um, as time evolved it grew into psychological and behavioral science um, i think to be more kind of encompassing of behavioral economics as a field um, and then incorporate that into kind of psychological theory and psychological um ways of thinking cool now that it's really useful to sort of understand that and before you before you join that like what what's your motivation to join a department like that like what what's what do you find interesting about it like what what's drawn you to this area well i think i suppose for me not just being interested in research is important but also kind of understanding how that research can have an impact and i think um one of the nice things about behavioral science is it was picked up by government as being like this big great thing that we can use to kind of influence policy um, and influence the world at quite a large scale. So I think the fact that that's got so much traction um, by policymakers and in government and that sort of thing is kind of very widely recognised now um, as being impactful. I think in the combination of that with uh, psychology just felt like it was a very good department to join. Um, it's kind of, yeah, I guess working with theories that will be relevant to um, what everyone's talking about at the time. So yeah, that was my kind of, that was the appeal of the department for me. Um, I came before, before I was at LSE, I was at St Andrews um, and that was a more kind of psychology focused. Um, so it was nice to, yeah, it's nice to have a kind of combination now, I think. Mm. Um, yeah. Just to set, share some data from our database back, one of the unhappiest professions in our database is HR professionals. Um, oh, really? Which, 
yeah, it often surprises people. And obviously, when we dig a little bit deeper, we're always looking into what, why, um, yeah. and HR professionals. And again, I'm just talking about our data set. Um, they often have, they often put impact quite high up as a, an important part of their job role. Okay. So if they don't feel that their role and their work is having an impact, their happiness slides. So I just, um, I just want you met, you definitely made an emphasis on the impact word. Mm-hmm. So just, I found that interesting. So I was just picking that up point up for our, a lot of our listeners are HR professionals. So I just wanted to pick up on that. And um, I, I find it interesting in terms of um, some research that you had out recently, which we'll talk about in a second. But you, um, in one of, in the article, it makes a point of um, referring to happiness as sub- subjective well-being. Yeah. Um, is that um, is that your belief? Is that the department's belief? Can you just talk us through how you how you group happiness and subjective well-being from from your perspective? Yeah. So from my perspective, subjective well-being is really just the kind of academic term for happiness. I mean, they, yeah. they essentially mean the same thing. Um, and I think. Yeah, happiness, I suppose, is maybe more, it's, it's a word that resonates better with the everyday person, I think, yeah. um, rather than you wouldn't ask someone how, you know, how's your subjective well-being today? You would, <laughs> you would ask how happy are you? But I think the word happiness, unfortunately, when you're talking, going back to impact again, if you're trying to persuade policy, um, saying this will just make people happy. I This is just a, my opinion, by the way, but I think that that was kind of obviously not enough for some policymakers and subjective well-being maybe made it sound a bit more kind of academic and scientific um, yeah. i think fortunately happiness had some old connotations with not being uh, the most robust kind of thing that we can measure in the world so yeah. potentially that's why the two kind of definitions have overlap and kind of i suppose where subjective well-being came into being but yeah it's yeah. a good it's a good question we use them interchangeably in a in the department yeah. but that is good I would encourage people listening the next time they're going to ask someone how happy they are to actually ask, as you put it, how is your subjective <laughs> well-being? And let Amanda and I know how it goes down. Let's get a really um, nice weird look. Yeah. But we have the same challenge in business. Like sometimes when people hear the name, the happiness index, they they just, they can bucket as in the we're hippies, which again, don't think there's anything wrong with hippies, but <laughs> it's, they often think it's like the softer side of business, even though there's so much research and it's not, but that's it's fascinating insight that that's, that you use them interchangeably and it's always good to understand i also in the article and again we'll get to that next but you you say happiness refers to how people think and feel about their lives um can you just um talk us through about what you mean by um how people think and feel because that's 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 also language that let's talk about um quite a bit but i'd like to know um what you mean and how that that resonates with you yeah, sorry, could you just repeat that question one more time? I think I missed the In, in the um, LSE article on, on the duration of um, happiness and in, um, the research piece. Yeah. There's a piece in there that says happiness refers to how people think and feel about their lives and their everyday experiences. Oh, um, I that. That's, a, that's a, a definition that our listeners will be, be familiar with from a business context. But from a research perspective, can you just bring that to life to us, what, what, what you mean yeah. by that? Yeah, so I suppose how we how we measure happiness um, in the study, at least, is we use kind of two very common measures, uh, which are experiential measures of happiness. So you can basically divide happiness into kind of um, experiential measures, 
um, or more kind of overall evaluations. Um, so an overall evaluation example would be something like um, overall how satisfied are you with your life, um, which is typically referred to as like life satisfaction. Um, so that is a very easy thing to measure because it's just one question. Um, but if you're looking at kind of experiential happiness, which is important for several reasons, which we can go into if you like. But if you if you're wanting to kind of get a more nuanced um, overview of happiness that maybe um, is, well, many people would argue more accurate, but not everyone. Um, experiential measures are useful for that because they get into kind of breaking down your daily experiences and then combining that into one kind of aggregate score. So. Yeah. That's where how you think and feel about happiness. There's kind of a distinction there. So I guess how people think about their happiness might be different to how they're actually experiencing those individual happy moments over the course of their lives. Okay. So um, that's really useful. Yeah, you might you might have somebody. Um, there's a good example that my supervisor always uses of a, of a woman who works for a very famous kind of TV company, um, and she always goes on about how much she hates her job, every aspect of it. Um, like the every kind of experience that's within the job but then at the end of the conversation she sort of finishes by saying oh but I you know I love my job um, and there's kind of often a conflict between people's overall evaluation that they like to fit with kind of societal expectations and things like that versus their day-to-day -day experience of that job yeah or that so I remember, no that makes sense I remember someone explained to me very similar and they said it's like one's a Polaroid like photo of your experience and one is like the actual replaying of the video um yeah that's and that's always, that's always stayed in my head but no, that's a really good example and obviously the research i got in touch um with you amanda because what the reason what we love at the happiness index is always trying to use data to sort of bust assumptions or things that people have just fought for for many periods of time without looking at the research and the sort of the, the headline that i read on the, the on the lse blog is uh, duration doesn't impact happiness according to new research um can you that's obviously what the LSE put on the blog post can you just okay, tell yeah. us a little bit about the piece of research like I suppose we'd like to do the why and the what like why did you do this research and yeah and what is the research and then we'll get on to what you found at, at the end so the, the, I suppose the why is a good place why did you find this interest this piece of research interesting to do yeah so we actually set out to kind of explore um or compare the two two experiential measures of happiness. So there are two different kind of ways of getting people's experiential experiences um, of happiness over time. So you can either basically ask them in the moment um, as they go about their lives, you know, what they're doing, uh, how happy they are and how long it lasted. Um, but another way of doing this is just basically asking them either at the end of the day or at the beginning of the next day um, to just document each experience or each kind of activity episode that they engaged in of the previous day and kind of document their the happiness associated with each of those activities and how long they last so one of them i suppose requires a bit of like memory recall and perhaps that introduces some level of bias and that's what we were expecting is that maybe there'd be a difference between that kind of recalled happiness of the previous day versus in the moment of the previous day um, so we were really just looking to see what, you know, wh which of these measures um, is, whether they're different, I suppose, um, and also how different they are to life satisfaction overall. But what we found in the data was what we weren't expecting. <laughs> this was just this general finding that when we weighted these happiness scores by duration, so that just means that we would kind of 
for each um, happiness report. So when we asked people, what are you doing? How happy did you feel? And how long did it last? Um, in one of the happiness scores, we kind of incorporated this information about how long the activity lasted. And the idea should be that, you know, the longer you, time you spend in happy activities, the more happiness you should have overall. Um, but what was odd was that we didn't find that. <laughs> and that was pretty, yeah, we, that kind of led into us questioning then the measures, um, questioning whether that's just, is that a normal thing for people to, yeah, well, I mean, you would, you would by fact expect that more happiness or longer time in more happy moments would give you more happiness. So the fact we found no difference between those two calculations of this, the happiness score was kind of, yeah, just raised a few questions and we found that interesting to unpack. Yeah, and did you, I suppose it's a, a follow-up question, there's obviously, there's research and it's sort of like the hedonic treadmill and the sort of happiness set point work. Did you sort of discuss the links in there and, and, and how that changes over time or did you just keep it into this specific piece? Yeah, so we did think about, we did think about that and we also thought about duration neglect because it kind of, it's brung to mind this idea that duration doesn't kind of impact um, happiness. However, duration neglect is a slightly different phenomenon. Um, that's really just kind of the fact that we don't remember how long painful experiences last. Uh, we don't distinguish yeah. between the lengths. Uh, whereas in our findings, we would expect that longer periods of happy moments should equal more happiness. And I think it, maybe what you mean when you're talking about the set point is that perhaps there's like a diminishing impact, whereas if you're in a happy activity for a certain amount of time, the happiness kind of goes down. Yeah. Um, but I think since we're, since we're looking at the happiness as an average score over that whole activity, it didn't really, yeah, it didn't really make sense. We should, we should still expect that longer times in happy, more happy experiences should just factually mean an increase in happiness, but we didn't yeah. find that. That's so interesting. And you may have already answered this question, um, but whenever we get anyone who's done research on to the podcast, I always ask them, yeah. what was your biggest surprise? So you like the headline is a bit of a surprise for, from what you set out. Is there anything else in there that when you were looking at as a team, you were like, oh, that's a bit weird or surprise or, or not what you were expecting to see? Uh, oh, it's a good question. It's a long time since we looked at that initial data and we spent a long time on this specific question. Um, but we found lots of things. I mean, we had like a load of passive measures in the study as well, which meant um, we were kind of collecting the different daily reports using a mobile app. Um, yeah. And within the app, we also measured things like noise levels. Um, we could get kind of a load of passive data input that would also tell us something about what causes happiness. So yeah, things like noise levels, um, location, uh, what else did we have kind of time spent on the phone, phone activity, that sort of thing. Um, and one of the main things that came out as negatively predicting happiness was noise levels. So very high noise that you're exposed to in everyday life um, was kind of one of the biggest things that decreased happiness. So that was pretty interesting. I didn't, that, I hadn't seen much research on that before. So yeah, that was. That is super interesting because there's, there's, there's so much follow-up research around environment that that, that that leads to. And I suppose that is the next question, Amanda. There's probably about 100 pieces of follow-up you could do to this. Yeah, as always. What, yeah. <laughs> what um, have you followed any? Have you followed any of the other areas up? Are you are you following anything up, or have you got plans to to look into new stuff, or have I missed a load of research that you just released in the last day? 
<laughs> so my focus now is on finishing the PhD. So I've got now a few months to finish that all up. And once that's done, um, this will be one of the studies that kind of forms my PhD. And once that's done, then yes, I would absolutely love to kind of continue some of the questions we've asked. Like one of the things that would be nice to test off the back of this study, I think, um, would be to see whether it's actually the case that if you measure happiness differently, let's say we measured happiness using instead of activities, we we kind of used um, we got people to say, how happy are you feeling now? And how long has that kind of happiness episode lasted rather than asking people how long has the activity lasted? Because what we think is maybe some of the reason we're not understanding or seeing a relationship between duration and happiness levels is perhaps because we're missing some important variation there in terms of like yeah what what these durations are associated with because it may not be that the duration of an activity is directly linked to the duration of your happy episode let's say you came into this uh, podcast already feeling very happy um then if i just took 30 minutes that we've been speaking as kind of a measure of your happiness that would be inaccurate because you already had another 30 minutes before that where you're at the same level let's say uh, yeah it's so interesting because like in our data set which is obviously work focused the number yeah. one driver that comes out for us universally is 50 percent of what you said at the beginning which is relationships um yeah. so if we took an activity let's say like something that's a social activity but you did that on your own it might not have had the impact there's a there's a there's a research yeah. study out i'll try and share it in the post um afterwards around how working out as a team can be a good thing um okay. um and that that actually is good for people but then there's also people's dna individual bits because i love as me personally i love playing football as part of a team but yeah. running running for me is a solo sport so if someone says do you want to go i go for a run every day but if someone says they can they come with me i'm like no nah. <laughs> that's my space but then yeah. i wouldn't want to play, i wouldn't want to play football may i in a different so yeah. This, it, yeah it's so interesting there's so much to follow up on um, i think you're right there's also there must be an aspect of whether you choose to be alone or not, right? Because it's not yeah. always the case that being with other people will be a positive impact on your happiness. Yeah. If you choose to be with those people, then yes. Um, but yeah, I think there's some recent research out in Journal of Happiness Studies that looks at that. Like, I think they manipulate um, whether people have actually decided to be in those social situations or not. And they yeah. see a huge difference there. Can it also, can you just bring us inside the research a little bit? I always like to, I would love to understand like the process of research as well because on 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 it here it says the, there's four of you that were involved so yourself Xiao, um alexander um yeah. alexander and paul yeah C can you just talk to to us like we love this podcast because the inside of people's work yeah sure. like how do four people work on a project like this what do you argue about how do you agree <laughs> like how to set it up can you just bring us into one of those rooms or zoom calls so we can get a bit of yeah. that flavor amanda yeah so i suppose we've all got different skills that we bring to the table um so analysis was mainly done by joao um and he's amazing with numbers and did a great job on kind of looking at all of the possible reasons in our data that we could possibly think of as to why we might not be finding this relationship that we would expect to find between duration um and happiness um so yeah he was great at kind of running all those tests and then we in our meetings um we would all kind of discuss possible reasons for that um so paul and alex are both very good at these kind of high level big thinking big picture kind of thinking where they would 
kind of have a load of different reasons why this might have happened and then we yeah. would kind of go go and delve into them separately and then I would be kind of looking at all the literature and trying to understand it from a, I guess a more contextual point of view have other people found similar things um what can we learn from other studies in a similar area um so yeah I guess we all kind of come at it from slightly different angles but for the same solution but it's yeah. it, it was such a puzzling finding and it took a very long time for us to kind of interpret and kind of keep, keep thinking about different reasons why it might be but it, it seems at the end of the day that really happiness people's happiness levels aren't fluctuating that much and also the duration of their activities weren't fluctuating that much and we're just yeah. not sure whether that is an actual thing is that is that an accurate re representation of these things in real life or are the measures just not picking up on the variation so yeah. that was the kind of question we were trying to answer so interesting and then just another thing that i've been thinking about a lot recently with our data is that we're trying to interpret less which i know sounds crazy but we i i think one thing i've learned from sort of that last two or three years i just want to get your view on this to do with research is that and that's why i asked you the question about like bringing us into the research i feel like yeah. there's responsibility for companies like the happiness index and research institutions to share more of how the research was conducted and the and and its flaws as well because like we've got millions of data points at the happiness index but i always say like when we release it i say this mm -hmm. is just what happened in that moment at in that time and it could change rather than there's always a pressure isn't there to be like this is what we found out and these yeah. are the five things yeah um, so i just uh, and i i have a bit of a fear this is where a lot of inspiration comes from because if you take anything and you go, this is the fact, yeah. if you then have someone who does some research into the research, you can always find something that doesn't necessarily look how it is presented in the headline. And then all of a sudden everything gets discredited. So we're trying to do more of just going, look, this is what we've observed. Yeah. What, what do people think of what we've observed here and bring more people into the conversation? So it's a, it's a big question really, but do you have any thoughts on that and how research is presented? Yeah, I mean, I think it's such a big thing for researchers to be able to do that and also to be able to fail and make mistakes, because if you can't, that's, I'm, I don't know, maybe that's part of the thing that stops people from being so kind of transparent with things. Um, and there's sometimes, yeah, it's just, I think it would just do people a massive favour if we could be open to kind of giving people, I mean, there's obviously now a lot more emphasis that you should publish your data sets um, and publish the code so that people can replicate things a lot more easily, which is great. Um, but I just think there should also be kind of a social contract among scientists to kind of be doing that in a way that's constructive and collaborative um, yeah. to kind of get the best out of, out of the results. Um, so yeah, I think that what you're saying, as long as you're being kind of very clear about the generalizability of the findings um, and the fact that a lot of things to do with psychology and behavior are context dependent and yeah. so it's not yeah it's not necessarily expected that things will even replicate because yeah. different situation might mean a completely different outcome so yeah i think it's also just an acceptance of that um and rather than a kind of fear of that yeah uh, absolutely because that that's i think that's where that's yeah it's that fear that also then also sometimes i think undermines the research because there's yeah fear stops transparency and then if you're not transparent then people jump on a tiniest little thing and say well this whole thing's useless then. exactly <laughs> exactly 
yeah so I don't know there must be some way in which we could kind of cultivate a more collaborative approach to that 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 encourages or incentivizes people to um to just replicate other people's work in a way that's yeah in a way that's collaborative but yeah how that would look is is a good question something I'll think about I would recommend anyone who's listening to this conversation and wants to get have a look at something uh, to continue this conversation in their own head go go to youtube and look up in physics the double slit experiment around experiments and and observation i'll leave it at that i'm not even going to try and get into quantum physics today um but go to google and just just find a video on double slit experiment and it will just blow your brain um amanda last question because i want to respect your time um impact you mentioned impact at the beginning and we've talked about it a couple of times if we if we move forward over the next 10 years of your career um in the area that you're working in the work that you're doing what what type of impact uh, do you want to have from your work oh it's a great question um so i think ideally i would like to be able to continue research in some form so well yeah i continue researching and looking at research and using new research to kind of inform real world impact in some level so uh, i think one of the things I'd really like to be able to do is kind of work with different organizations and try and help bring behavioral science kind of into their worlds um, and kind of educate people beyond the realm of academia about it and about its uses and kind of see it's see it being implemented in real life somehow. So um, that's how I see my next 10 years. I'd like to pursue a career um, where there is crossover between research and applying my research knowledge um, into the real world. So whether that be kind of policy designing or looking at kind of working with other organisations or consultancy work, things like that, um, as long as I'm able to apply research into the real world, then, yeah, I'm happy. Oh, I love that, Amanda. Absolutely brilliant answer. Thank you for coming on and making this research so accessible and also giving myself and all our listeners a bit of an insight into how and how a team works on something like this. So, Amanda, I've learned so much. Um, I just want to finish by saying thank you. Thank you very much. It's been great. Speak to you soon.